If you're a young child, recently orphaned and struggling for survival along with your siblings in a seemingly unfriendly world, there's really only one thing you can hope for, right? To stumble upon an abandoned boxcar in the woods. The boxcar can offer you shelter and a home base from which you and the rest of your crew can start to build out some quote-unquote traditional family roles. From there, you can start to earn money and put your basic survival skills to the test. You can also continue to hide from your allegedly evil grandfather, because having to go live with him in the wake of your parents' death would obviously be the worst-case scenario. This is the setup for the Boxcar Children series, a franchise launched in 1924 and now encompassing over 150 titles, most of which are mysteries. Like so many other kids, I was a huge fan of the Boxcar Children series when I was growing up, and it was an especially interesting experience coming back to it for this episode, since of all the books we've read for the podcast so far, it's written at the simplest reading level. Our conversation about it is anything but simple, though. In this episode, you'll hear me and my guest, Abby Wolf, talk about the important lessons of resourcefulness, perspective, and wastefulness, discuss the heteronormative stereotypes that are so often imposed on young children, and speculate on just how many pine needles it would take to turn a boxcar into a cozy home. Abby is a writer, career coach, and health educator living in Portland, Maine. When she's not trying to make the world a happier and healthier place, you can find her cuddling with her cats, hunting down the city's best coffee and grilled cheese, or dipping her toes in the Atlantic. She would like to clarify, however, that she only dips her toes in the Atlantic in the summer. Abby's favorite form of self-care is a hot shower and reality TV, though not at the same time, followed by reading, duh, writing in her journal, and sprinting to random angry Taylor Swift songs. Follow Abby on Twitter at SchmabbyWolf and on Instagram at Schmab, and be on the lookout for her forthcoming podcast. If you're not already following SSR on social media, we would love to have you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you want to take your support for the show even further, we have a Patreon page that offers the perfect platform for that. For just a few dollars a month, you'll receive a handful of exclusive perks, including SSR merch, free shipping, on-demand book recommendations, a monthly newsletter, bonus episodes, access to book club chats, and more. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support. Thanks to all of the Patreon subscribers who are already out there lending their help. All aboard, listeners. Time to board the boxcar. I think that joke makes sense, but I'm not totally sure. Whatever. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Abby. Welcome to SSR. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you on because for listeners, Abby and I met a few months ago through previous SSR guest, Brittany Lynn, who was our guest on the actual, the first episode of SSR. Um, Brittany introduced us and in the time since we've known each other, Abby and I have discovered that we have like everything in common. So I'm kind of looking forward to see if all of our opinions about this book are the same, if our reading habits are the same, or if like maybe this is the moment when we realize that we're not exactly the same person. <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to talking about this book and 
because I have so many strong opinions on it. So I'm really curious to see what your thoughts are as well. And it's funny because this is really the shortest book that Mm -hmm. we've ever had on SSR. It's the book with the lowest reading level. It's the Boxcar Children book one, no subtitle because it's the OG Boxcar Children book. It's written for second to sixth graders. I believe I read somewhere that the vocabulary in this book was limited to 600 words. So it's really easy to read. I flew through it unlike any other book that I've read for the Mm -hmm. podcast before. But like you said, there's still a lot to talk about with it. So I'm anxious to see how this goes. um, And I can't wait to dive into the Boxcar Children's Weird Little World. Tell me why you picked this book. So the whole essence of this podcast is about digging back into our childhood. And so when I thought about the four books that you had provided me the option of, this one stuck out to me. I I just immediately thought about elementary school and reading this book. And the other ones, I like them as well, but I think I associated them more with the movies that went along with them. So I was like, I kind of want to just do one that I purely associate with my childhood. Do you remember reading a lot of the books in the series when you were growing up? Because for reference, there are now 150 books in the series. And obviously there weren't that many when you and I were back in elementary school. But even then, I remember there being tons of titles in the series and they were all lined up on the shelf at my school library. Yeah, I I thought that I had read a lot. Like I remembered there was a series, that it was a series. But then when I went to my local bookstore to find it, they had this whole stack of used boxcar children books. And I was really excited because I prefer to buy local if I can. And then I pulled the stack off the shelf and there were about 18 of them. And I was like, the first one has got to be here. Nope. The first one wasn't there. It was all different ones. And then I looked up the series and saw how many there were. And I was like, I thought I read a lot, but I definitely probably only read like three or four. I think I might be in the same boat. I have this memory of like being obsessed with the boxcar children. But again, when I looked at the title list, I didn't recognize that many. Mm -mm. At the same time, I think what's interesting about the Boxcar Children and maybe what separates it from other series is that I don't ever remember feeling like I had to read them in order. Like you could kind of just pluck off the shelf whichever Mm -hmm. one you hadn't read yet. And part of it was just the nature of like being in your school library where obviously other kids were taking out books from popular series as well. I just remember sort of like the luxury of just like grabbing books sort of from the beginning of the series versus the end. And there was really no reason to read them in order. So I wonder if that's changed the way that I remember it at all. I loved the series too. It was like super popular among my friends and I at the time um, back in the 90s when I was a kid. (laughs) And I think I... We're going to get into why I think I liked it, but just to sort of like set the groundwork, I think I liked sort of this sense of like calm that Mm -hmm. was associated with the book, especially in this first book. Like nothing really happens. There's a few points of action. There's like a few brief conflicts, but for the most part, it's just these kids living their lives and they're setting up a home for themselves. And now as an adult, I have some different feelings about that. But I think at the time I really liked sort of the simplicity of that. Growing up, I like in no way had as crazy of a childhood as these kids kids, of course, but my parents were divorced and I was going back and forth between my parents. And by nature, I'm like a very routine oriented person. And I really like sort of like the coziness of home. And I think there was something about like these kids being able to stick together through being mm-hmm. being orphaned by their parents and having some of these like crazy circumstances thrust upon them. I liked the idea that like they could still build this little home together. I think that was very appealing to me. In hindsight, I'm like, that's kind of a stupid premise. But I think that's part of why these books appealed to me when I was little. 
Yeah, I think for me, when I thought back, even now as an adult, and probably one of the reasons that I chose it is I I thought those kids were such badasses. Like they figured out how to live on their own. And I think it, it was just so far out of the realm of anything that I was experiencing as a child or that my friends were experiencing as children. We all had homes and roofs over our head and most of our parents at that time were still together. And so it was just, it was so different it was different, but it wasn't sci-fi or anything. So it was like these badass children who figured out how to live outside. And I think I just really idolized them and would think I, I could never do this. It's almost now like I'm real. Like, it's like real world fantasy because they are like living in what feels like a very realistic life. But it's right. like you said, it's not fantasy or sci-fi. What were your first impressions as you started on this book? And and after you share them, then I'll, I'll give like the very quick and easy to share summary of what's brought the boxcar children to the point where they are when we meet them. But first off, like, what did you think in those first few pages after you picked it up recently? The first time I picked it up when I first bought it, because I waited a couple weeks to read it because I wanted to read it right before this. I just, I mean, the first thing I noticed was just the size of the font and how quick it was going to be to read. And then as I started to read it yesterday, all I could think was this book, it's almost, it's really introducing kids to a chapter book and it's introducing kids to that traditional style of writing. So there was a lot of Henry said, Violet said, he said, she said, and I was like, oh, this is going to be quick, but a little bit painful as well, because we've now gotten to the point in literature and reading in our adult lives where we can follow a conversation without it having to say who's saying every single line. So I think I just started to think about what it was like to kind of learn how to read these longer books. Well, longer for us at the time. And for context, the author or the creator of the series, Gertrude Chandler Warner, was actually a first grade teacher. Um, the first version of the book was published in 1924. It was much different than what you and I are looking at right now. It was longer and it was actually a little bit darker. And then in 1942, um, a pared down version of the Boxcar Children book one came out. But because she was a first grade teacher, she actually kind of like workshopped the book with her students. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere that she, as she was writing it, she would be like, reading it out loud to her students and then every time she'd make a change she would read it again to them so she kind of like updated it based on what her students thought and at the time a lot of her students didn't speak English at home and so they were just learning how to speak English so I think she maybe realized along the way that it would be to her benefit to sort of like keep the prose really simple and Mm -hmm. like you said to kind of set up this very basic structure of a chapter book so that all of her kids could sort of be at equal footing when they picked up a book such as the boxcar children whatever happened to the original 1924 darker version because I kind of want to read that one now I know I kind of want to read it too especially based on what I learned about it online so I think what happened was that sales of the 1942 edition just kind of like blew it out of the water. So Mm -hmm. people forgot about the 1924 edition. What I learned about it is that it has a slightly different title, like very, very slightly different title. It was called The Box Dash Car Children. Fun fact. Um, So box and car hadn't been pushed together yet. In that first version, there's also more information about what happened to the family prior to them actually becoming like the quote unquote boxcar children. So one of the big mysteries of this book that I'm sure you and I will get into more is like, where the hell are the parents? We find out that they've been orphaned, but there's never really a mention of the parents after that. They don't seem to miss them. There's no sadness about like the fact that they're both dead. And in the original version, there are, I think like a few chapters of backstory. And it sounds like kind of 
terrible. Like it seems as though the Alden family had just kind of like moved in to this New England town. Nobody knew who they were and they were very strange. The mother was already dead and their dad was an alcoholic. And so he's portrayed as this like really sloppy drunk. And then he dies soon after that. It seems though it's like implied that it's from a drinking problem. And then I think the rest of the book was just like a little bit longer. Like there are more twists and turns. It wasn't quite as simple as the version that you and I just read or the one that kids are reading today because that original version I don't think is is in print any longer. Yeah, I honestly think as a second grader, I mean, I know this is second through sixth grade, but let's say as the lowest age that it's for, so someone who's six or seven years old, I don't think that stuff is needed. And I think if it was in there, perhaps my mom wouldn't have even wanted me to read it just because it is dark. So I don't know if I would have been left wanting that information at that age, but at this age, I'm like, but I need, I need more. Like I need to know everything. Yeah. Where did your parents go and how did you find yourselves in this bakery? Right. And Oh gosh, the bakery. So many things. So we meet these kids. There's four of them at the bakery at the beginning of the book. There's Henry, who's the oldest. He's 14. Jesse, who's the second oldest. She's 12. And there's Violet, who's 10. And Benny, who I believe is meant to be five. And then he turns mm-hmm. six at some point, like in the next few books. So he's like five just about to be six. Um, we meet them in the bakery. All that we really know about them at this point is that they are orphaned. We have no other information about their family. We don't know even how long their parents have been dead, which for me as an adult was the most glaring sort mm-hmm. of like a hole in the story. Like, have they been out on their own for a long time? Did their parents just die yesterday? And they're sort of like having to think on their feet and figure out what to do next. Lots of questions, but basically we find them in the bakery because naturally they're hungry and they want to get some bread to eat and they find themselves in an uncomfortable situation because the baker and his wife, upon hearing their story, decide that they want to try to keep the three oldest children to put them to work in the bakery and then they're basically going to like push Benny off onto some other family. So obviously the four kids like freak out because they don't want to be separated and the adventure begins. Did I miss anything or does that sound like I covered it? No, you covered it. And speaking about taking dark things out of this book, that one was left in because that was so dark to me. The fact that these people, these grown adults didn't have more questions. I mean, the the baker's wife asked a few questions about where they were, like, where's your mom? Where are you from? Where do you live? Why do you think your grandfather's meet? We'll we'll get into it. But other than that, she was just like, "Mm, okay, I'll keep the ones who can help me. I don't really care about finding these kids help. And I want to give away the youngest one. Like I want to split them up. I became visibly agitated as I was reading this because I was like, you're, I think I wrote on this page, the baker's wife is just awful, awful. It feels very Oliver Twist to me. And part of it yeah. is, of course, like a function of the time. I think we're meant to believe that these early books in the series take place in like the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And again, like by today's standards, none of this is okay. And even by the standards of hopefully the 20s and 30s, like this wasn't common practice or like encouraged. But I guess like maybe to kids who read it decades and decades ago, it would be like, yeah, I mean, desperate times call for desperate measures. But still, to like split up a family is really messed up. And it is strange to me, especially given the way that so many of the other women in this book are characterized and the way that the little girls are characterized. This baker's wife is such a foil to them because she has like not an ounce of maternal energy. Mm -hmm. Like she's not concerned about them. Whereas it seems like throughout the rest of the book, it's very clear that women are supposed to act a certain way. 
and they're supposed to be motherly and kind and compassionate and all of those things. Like that was the expectation at this time in history. And the baker's wife is none of those things. Oh yeah. I mean, it says that it was later in the book, but like the beginning of one of the chapters says, Jesse, Jesse was the oldest, right? Uh, Jesse was the oldest daughter. Yeah. Henry's the oldest, oldest daughter. Son. Yeah. Jesse's the older girl. I kept getting Jesse and Violet confused throughout the book yeah. too. I got their ages confused, but Jesse, they said Jesse rolled out of got up first and she got up quickly because she's the housekeeper. And I just was like, oh, I'm cringing. Yeah, let's just get into that, shall yeah. we? Because for me, that was probably the element of the book that's like most worthy of a discussion or at least the kind of discussion that like I'm chomping at the bit to get into. And it's also the subject of a lot of the think pieces that I found online about the boxcar children. There's a lot of good stuff out there about this series, not only because it's obviously like a beloved series, 50 million copies sold, like everybody has read the boxcar children. So a lot of writers have a lot to say about it, but there was also an animated movie that came out in 2016. And then there's another installment in the series coming out in 2018. So like around that time, there was a lot of, there were a lot of think pieces coming out about the series. And most of the content that I found focuses on this sense of the quote unquote like American dream kind of nuclear family, which now in 2019 we look at and we're like, okay, that's a very narrow view of what a family looks like. It's an extremely heteronormative view to think that like little boys are raised to be a certain way so that they can grow up to be a certain kind of man. And the fact that little girls are raised to be a certain way so that they can grow up to be a certain kind of woman is in our current worldview, super fucked up and not something that I certainly like want to endorse on the podcast, but right. it's worth talking about because it's extremely heavy handed in this book. And as soon as the kids are on their own, it seems like they're like very comfortable jumping into these roles where like Henry's going to be like the dad and Jesse's going to be the mom and they're going to like function as this family in what seems to be like maybe the way that their family functioned where their dad was the breadwinner and their mom handled everything at home. There was also this underlying current uh, and sometimes quite obvious of Henry just treating Jesse like she was stupid. Like she was doing all these things, figuring out all these things around the house while he was gone. And yes, they were all very stereotypical of what a female should do, but she was going to the dump to find dishes and she made the the ladle out of all these different things. But he would say to her, like, keep Benny close to you and don't let him run away. And oh, you, you have the fire now, whatever you, I think he said, whatever you do, don't get on fire. She's like, just going to like let herself be caught on fire. Like she's come all this way and done all this. I don't think she needs to be reminded to not set herself on fire and to not let Benny out of her sight. It, it's like, it's frustrating. I enjoyed that. Don't set yourself on fire line too. Oh, like, thanks. Good looking out. Thank you, Henry. Really appreciate it. Well, I was like, is this supposed to be a joke? But I don't think so because there were no other jokes. Like they didn't really have any humor. So I just think he thought she was stupid. Yeah, there's not really any irony in this book. It's extremely straightforward. Again, I think it's probably because it's aimed at kids that are so young that like maybe you can't understand jokes like that. But you're right. I was like, are you kidding? Like, of course she's not going to set herself on fire. If you're trusting her enough to like handle all these other things, then you would hope that you firmly believe that she's not going to get herself caught on fire. I made a list of a few sort of hilarious domestic kind of quotes from the book. One of the think pieces that I found refers to this as like a domestic fantasy in, in the vein of Little House on the Prairie, which I see mm -hmm. like so much of what I loved about Little House on the Prairie was the descriptions of all of the things that they had to do on the house and all the ways that they had to be resourceful all the things that they made for themselves like that really appealed to me as a kid and in hindsight this reminds me of that a lot and I think a lot of the reasons that 
Little House on the Prairie was close to my heart as a kid, like probably mirrored in, in the boxcar children. But I did pull out a few quotes that sort of point to this like quote unquote domestic fantasy thing. This is Jessie. She says, please, Henry, we could have the nicest little home here and we could find some dishes and make four beds and a table and maybe chairs. <laughs> So I think when they first got into the boxcar and around that quote, all I could think was, but what about lighting? Because when they were opening and closing the door, they never really mentioned anything about lighting that I remember. So I was like, okay, you've got these chairs and now you're going to have cups and spoons and whatever. But can you see, or is it just, you know, is it bad? If it was in the twenties, maybe it was the time when they went to bed when the lights went out, but I just, there were some logistical things. I was very confused. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's a very practical and reasonable consideration. That's all I could think about when they were dragging that big, the big door closed is like the light just eclipsing them. And they were sitting there talking and I was like, are they sitting there in the dark? And why has the five-year-old not mentioned that he can't see? Because I feel like that would be a really big concern for a five-year-old. Although, you know, he's been living outside for the past three nights or whatever it was. So maybe nothing scares him anymore. You'd think it would be on brand for Benny to say something about like, why is it so dark? Yeah. Or, I really want a candle, Jesse, and some milk, please. Please, can I have some milk? Yeah, the whole, some of the logistics of the boxcar are confusing because in some ways it seems like they have it really dialed in and others like you just described, maybe not so much. I guess we failed to mention this because I was so excited to talk about heteronormativity and gender roles but the reason that they're in the boxcar is because it was raining and they came across it and they're like we need shelter they ran to the boxcar realized that it was I guess clean enough for them to make a home out of and they decided to move in there so that's why we're in the boxcar other hilarious domestic kinds of quotes now Jessie liked to have things in order and so she put the laundry bag on some pine needles for a tablecloth then she cut the loaf of brown bread into five big pieces the cheese was cut into four and this one I think I highlighted almost more so just because of like the excruciating detail which was pointed out in a few of the think pieces that I read just like the extent to which the author breaks down every last move that these kids make and obviously in this case it's about sort of like the domestic aspects of their life and the things that Jessie of course is doing to set up home for them. Yeah, I just, I got stuck on the pine needles part because... They're using them for a lot of things. They're using they them, use for, them for a table. They use them for a lot of things. They're sleeping on and them. I, they're sleeping on them. They made beds out of them, which just blew my mind because I've tried to pick up pine needles before. I mean, I have. I've, I've grown up in the Northeast my entire life. I can't conceptualize how many pine needles they would have to pick up in order to make some sort of cushion on the floor, like a layer. I I just, that was really, I I had a hard time visualizing what that looked like and how long it took. Well, and Henry is a 14 year old boy who, based on the fact that he wins this race later on at field day, like I kind of like to imagine him as this tall strapping young man. So again, that's going to need to be a pretty large bed, which means lots of pine needles to your point. A lot of pine needles, even for Benny. It's just a lot of pine needles. I, that was okay. There were a lot of little logistical things in here that I was like, I don't really understand, but that one just really stuck out to me. I was like, you shouldn't even bother. I feel like this would have taken a really long time or get other leaves or something. And I don't know why it just bothered me so much. I just, I couldn't imagine. I just, I still can't imagine it. It's a lot of pine needles. I agree. Yes. So then Henry goes on later to say, I thought we ought to have the tablecloth, but it wasn't end. So he's gone out and he's bought this tablecloth after he gets a job. And Violet begged, the text in the book says, Violet begged, oh, let me hem it, please. She begs. She begs to hem the tablecloth because that's what she 
feels her job and like dare I say her purpose is like look some kids love to sew I get it but just the language of it that she's like begging to be the one to hem the tablecloth just very different obviously than the way that we would write a group of children today or that we would want to read about a group of children today. Right, because if you think about it, they have so many other things going on, not to mention survival that they need to kind of think about that. One, why does the tablecloth need to be hemmed? And Good question. Two, Great question. Why wasn't it hemmed? What store sells an unhemmed tablecloth? Is it at that point just not a piece of fabric? Just like a long piece of fabric that you're supposed to do what you want with? I, I mean, like, look, I don't know much about sewing, clearly. Well, and up until that point, Violet's only contribution had been getting Benny to do things by telling him he was an animal. Like, uh, this bear would love to frolic in the river, and this bear would love to eat this. So, of course, she was chomping at the bit to be able to do something else that made her feel productive because she's twice Benny's age. She's not like a little, little girl. And she's very close to Jesse's age. So she's probably just really wanted to do something more. And that was in the category of female tasks. So that was in her wheelhouse. She knew how to do yeah. that. Later, her work, her work bag from the very beginning. You got to have a work bag. Your work bag has to be filled with all of the sewing essentials. That's what I always say. My purse is always full of them, clearly. Um, and then later on, either Violet or Jesse says, we girls must go and get dinner. We'll ring the bell when we are ready. <laughs> but of course. Yeah. I was slightly glad that she said, we're going to get dinner, so you guys swim first, and then we'll take turns. It's like, at least they're acknowledging that they should get a chance to swim. But, you know, I guess back in those days, it was just normal. And still sometimes today, for the female to sacrifice her needs and wants in order to take care of the family unit and the males because the males could never make dinner. Never. I mean, I always ring the bell when I'm done making dinner for my husband because he's out like chopping wood or something here in Brooklyn and he just needs to know that the food is laid out on the table and waiting for him. I mean, how would he survive? It's true. He wouldn't get fed. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Look, I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. I'm not discounting the fact that this was obviously written in a different time we're having a laugh about all of these things because to us in 2019, it is ridiculous. It doesn't mean that like I disrespect that this book is from a different decade. I get all of that. But I do think it's important to note, as I've said before, like these books are still on the shelves. The edition that I ordered from Amazon has a brand new cover. So they're reissuing the books with mm-hmm. the text still the same inside, which means that kids still read them as they were in 1942 and when, when Abby and I read them when we were in elementary school. So Look, I get that we can't expect the culture of some of these books to match our own, but kids are still reading them. I think it's also worth noting that there are still new Boxcar Children books being released today. There are three coming out in 2018 alone. So, look, I haven't read any of those. I, I would imagine that some of these like cultural norms and dynamics have changed. I read on our handy-dandy Wikipedia that those newer books take place in present day. So I like to think that kids who are reading like the brand new Boxcar Children books aren't picking up on some of these cues, but I think it is worth discussing just because like you can still buy this exact same book on Amazon and it is very backwards. And so it is hilarious, first of all, and it's worth talking about for those reasons. And just to note that my friend is a teacher down in the Philly area And she, when I posted this, that I was reading this on Instagram yesterday, she responded with a picture that she is teaching her kids this book 
as we speak, like this week. So it's not only still on shelves, but it is still being actively taught in schools. And all of those domestic housekeeping tasks were put in the girls category. And then the like hauling rocks in the, the um, wagon and the working and making money, it was put in the male category. And it's not surprising. It's just, you know, this was almost a hundred years ago that was, this was written. So it's good that we don't like this. Like there's been some progress. Yeah. It would be weird if we liked it. And I, I think you're right. It's, it's just interesting how easily these kids just sort of like slip into their roles. And I was thinking about the idea of playing house and how when you're a little kid, like that's a common thing that you play with your friends at recess on the playground. And so I guess that's like a natural instinct maybe for kids is to like, you see what adults around you are doing and you obviously like want to aspire to be older. And so if these kids were seeing a certain construction of what a family looked like and what an adult man looked like, what an adult woman looked like, it's only natural that they wanted to rise to the occasion when they were left to their own devices. So I get all of that. And I I wonder if the idea of reading about kids sort of taking on these adult roles appealed to young readers in the same way that playing house appeals to kids. Like it's fun to read about kids that are like pretending to be adults. And in this case, like they're doing a really good job at it. And I think there are good takeaways in the ways that these kids are really like growing up and being mature in this situation. Like they're very resourceful. They are making the best of a bad situation. There aren't, there's not a lot of complaining going on. Henry just goes and he's like, I guess I have to get a job. Like they are making the best of what seems sort of impossible to most kids. I think like the fact that they're abandoned and lonely in the world, but they have each other and they, they make it work. And so I think all of those are sort of like the positive lessons. And I I think there's also a healthy lesson about perspective in all of this, because one of the first challenges that they have to overcome in the book is like, they don't have any water and Mm -hmm. they have to find water to drink. And then throughout most of the book, the challenge is like making sure that they have enough resources to get food and a bed to sleep in. And so I think there's like a healthy dose of perspective there where thankfully, like there's a lot of kids reading this book that don't have to wonder if those sort of like basic needs are going to be taken care of. And I think it's like good for kids every now and then to read like as a reminder, not everybody has these basics that you do. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I think that both of those lessons that you mentioned are probably why I did like these books so much when I was younger. Mostly the part, and I mentioned this at the beginning, just about them being so resourceful and thinking of solutions to problems that I wouldn't have ever thought of because I was so spoiled in the sense that I had a home, a a nice home. I had two parents. I had a brother, an older brother, and they were always all taking care of us. And I had food on the table three times a day. I didn't even have to think about it. I just went downstairs and it was there. I had rides everywhere. You know, I didn't ever have any real work as a child. And so I was really impressed with everything that they came up with. And were some things a little too convenient? Like, oh, there just happens to be a dump within walking distance of their boxcar. Like, okay, whatever. It's a, it's a story. Even if I would have found a dump near my boxcar, I wouldn't have known what to do with any of that. I would have been like, oh, you can't have a cup with a crack. Like it was even a lesson for me again, as an adult, kind of a grounding lesson of you don't need these perfect things. Like you really do just need the bare minimum. And I think I had a thought yesterday where I said, why am I worrying about all of these things and making, for instance, like making all of these fancy, but healthy meals for myself. Like I could just have a bit of bread and a bit of cheese 
and I'd be okay. Now, am I ever going to eat blueberries out of a bowl of milk? Nope. But if maybe if I find myself without other resources, maybe I will. I mean, it's food. The original minimalists, the boxcar children, right? Right. And and even the sense of um, not letting things go to waste. There's a moment after Henry starts working for Dr. Moore, who's like a local villager. I think they're living near a village in the boxcar. He starts working for him, like doing odd jobs around the house. And he helps Dr. Moore's mother in her garden. And he's like picking all the vegetables. And obviously there are some that are in really great shape. And then the rest, Dr. Moore is very quick to be like, you can sort of just get rid of all of these leftover pieces from the garden, I guess, like vegetables that weren't perfectly ripe. And Henry is so excited because the doctor ends up letting him take those leftovers, those cast-offs home to share with his family. And the same thing happens later on when he's organizing the doctor's toolbox or something. He finds all of these nails that are bent and the doctor's like, I don't want those. I don't need them. They're not useful to me. I have all of these brand new nails. And Henry's really excited that he's then allowed to take all of the cast-offs home because he has a lot of building projects that he needs to work on. And so again, like having the appreciation for the fact that so many of us are like very quick to get rid of things that aren't perfect, a food that's not in perfect condition. I'm guilty of it. And again, just like this sort of healthy reminder that a lot of people are grateful for the things that we would very easily throw away. Yeah. And I thought, cause the other thing that Henry found was four hammers and the doctor laughed because he said, that one's mine. That one's yours, mom. Cause he lived with his mom or his mom lived with him. And then those other two, I, I had just bought new ones. I thought I lost those. And it just, again, was another lesson to me of, Oh, how quickly we will just buy a replacement because we were kind of mindless in where we put things. Like we didn't put them back in their home and we didn't, we didn't treat them with care of, you know, this is a prized possession. I mean, to some people, maybe a hammer isn't a prized possession, but really we should treat our things better. We're not being so wasteful. And then the other comment I had about that was, this is more about the food, but at the one point he pulls up the carrots that are crowding the other carrots so that the main carrots can grow or his mom lets him take home those carrots and says, well, do you have any chickens? Do chickens eat carrots? I guess. I got really confused by that, those couple sentences. Fair. I, I mean, I never had chickens, but that just like stuck out to me. It's like, okay, he's taking the carrots and she thinks that he's taking them to his chickens. Right. And really he's like trying to feed his family. Right. But I was so excited that they got a vegetable. Yeah. Cause they're eating a lot of bread and cookies. At one point they get to eat cookies for dinner, which is kind of the wildest thing that they do. Yeah. I remember being so excited about that. Cause I think a nugget like that is Again, one of the things that really appeals to young readers about a book like this where the kid characters are on their own, like you sort of look for moments like that where kids are just going to go rogue and like eat ice cream for dinner, eat a cookie mm-hmm. for dinner. And finally we get like a moment of that from the boxcar children, but generally they are so well behaved. Mm-hmm. They do everything right. There's a huge emphasis on work in this book. There's a piece that I found in the New Yorker that's called The Boxcar Children and the Spirit of Capitalism, which is fascinating. And I'll link it in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. But the idea is that this is sort of like a capitalist fable in that if you just think about Henry, Henry's first thought is A, to assume this very traditional quote unquote man of the house mantle and like take on control of everything that's going on within the boxcar to start kind of assigning duties to Violet and Jesse and like 
sort of being like, okay, you guys handle Benny. Like, I don't have time. He immediately goes to work. His goal is to provide for his sisters and his brother. And ultimately, they're really rewarded for his hard work. And even Jesse and Violet at home, like, they're just being so industrious. Their whole life is about work and working hard. And these are children. And so it's interesting that we have these four kids whose, like, instinct is just to work and, like, not to have fun or to play, even though they don't Mm -hmm. have anybody telling them otherwise. So one of the quotes from that New Yorker article is, for them, there's no better use of total independence than perfectly mimicking the most respectable behaviors of adults. They earn money, do chores when no one's watching, and engage in none of the mischief that other literary children take to and left to their own devices. Then they go on to give a few examples of that kind of mischief, and they say, none of that for the boxcar children who are so Puritan that Henry worries out loud that building a pool on a Sunday would be amoral, before Jesse justifies the activity by saying that the pool will help keep them clean. They're perfect kids. Like, they're perfect. The worst thing they do is eat cookies for dinner one time. Well, and it makes you think a lot then about their upbringing, too, because, like, we were kind of, like, you were touching on a little bit earlier, they might have seen these role models of, well, this is what mom does. This is what dad does. And she's washing their stockings. I I would have never thought about that. Yes, I probably would have smelled, but I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have thought about it because, again, you're just trying to survive and you're kids. So you're like, oh, I don't have to do some of these things that I would have to do if mom and dad were still here. But they've been raised, it seems they've been raised very well, which is interesting, especially when we think about the parts of the book that were taken out about the dad possibly being an alcoholic and the mom's already dead. So it's like, gosh, there's just what happened to them before this point? Like I, I need, I need a prequel. Unless they came from such a dysfunctional home that like they had to handle everything by themselves. Like maybe their dad was always Mm. drunk and their mom was either gone or not in good shape. And so like maybe Violet had to play the mother figure and that's why she like thinks to do these things when other kids wouldn't. So I think, I think you're right. Either they had this like very perfect Beaver Cleaver-esque kind Mm -hmm. of childhood or things were really dysfunctional and they had to figure out how to take care of themselves. And I think that's the other cool thing is that this is a really tight sibling unit. And in the same way that we were talking about how the book teaches you that like maybe you don't need four hammers, maybe you only need Mm -hmm. one or you don't need to be doing all of this like fancy meal prep when you can just go to the grocery store and buy some basics. I think the other good lesson here is like you don't necessarily need a lot of stuff if you have your people around you because these four really take care of each other. And maybe that comes from like necessity because... If we think back to that first edition of the book, it doesn't sound like they were coming from this family that really took good care of them. Yeah, I mean, and they really do only have each other because if it's back in the 1920s, even if it's in the 1940s, you know, there's so much less technology. People aren't really venturing that far out of like a 15 mile radius of of where they're growing up. There's not technology. They really are only connected to the people that they see every day. On that note, kind of talking about the family unit, I think we have to start talking about the grandfather because he Mm -hmm. obviously plays a big role near the end of the book. We alluded to this briefly before, but at the beginning when we meet the kids at the bakery, there's some conversation, I think, with the baker and the baker's wife where they ask them if they have other family and like, why, if you're orphans, aren't you living with other family members? And the kids explain that they do have a grandfather. And I think the implication is that the grandfather is their father's father who did not approve of their mother. And so because of that, like he never came to visit them. They have no relationship with him. So theoretically, they would have gone to live with him, but they think 
think he's mean, and so they're kind of trying to outrun him. I guess they think maybe he would, like, try to come find them, which was a little confusing for me because I was like, if he's never come to visit you and he doesn't like you, and again, assuming that there's not a lot of technology, like, how would he think to come find you? Again, like, logistical considerations that I probably shouldn't be worrying myself over. But yeah, so we know that there's this grandfather and they're kind of trying to outrun him. They escape from the bakery because they don't want Benny to be taken away from them. And their goal is to sort of like stay as far away from where the grandfather would be as possible so that they don't have to risk ending up with this guy who they think is an asshole. So for most of, for like I would say the middle section of the book, there's not much talk about the grandfather because they're, they've settled into this nice routine where like they're keeping house at the boxcar and Henry is going to work every day. And then later on, the grandfather comes back into play because, well, we know that it's because he is running this field day for the local boys. Um, And then the boxcar children themselves know later on because Dr. Moore, Henry's boss, ends up reconnecting the family when he he makes the connection between this like local steel magnate who is their grandfather and the kids because he's sort of been like keeping an eye on them from afar. Can we just talk for a minute about... The introduction to this field day. Yes, please do. I know. I, you, okay, here's like a little behind the scenes. Abby texted me a picture of the passage that I think she's about to discuss highlighted. And I was like, got it. We're going to talk about it. So here we are. Here's our moment. I will preface it with, I do think it has a lot to do with when it was written and the level it was written for. But I, I cringed. Um, okay, so the passage goes, now J.H. Alden liked boys. He likes to see them running and jumping and playing. So each year with three other rich men, he gave a field day to the town of Silver City and even the mills were closed down. I really don't think that this was that big deal of a paragraph back in the 1920s, but this day and age, I really don't think you could get away with this in a children's book or any type of book unless it worked into the, to some type of nefarious plot with saying that a grown man liked boys and to see them kind of performing for him and that a bunch of rich men came together to have a bunch of little boys perform for them. I just, it was a paragraph that it, it struck me to my core. It creeped you out and rightfully it so. Me out. I think like, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but when I read this in the nineties, I don't know that it would have rubbed me the wrong way. I think if anything, what would have bugged me about it as a little girl would have been like, oh, so he doesn't like little girls. Like he only likes mm-hmm. little boys. But I, I think that kids today, I think kids of 2019 are a little bit wiser to the world. And so I can see young readers kind of laughing a little bit at this now, knowing that there might sort of be this potential to interpret it in a different way. I can see some kids being upset by it because they've had experiences Mm -hmm. maybe in their own lives where like they've felt as though they have to perform in an inappropriate Mm -hmm. way for adults. So I think it's interesting. I think you're right. I think when the book was written in the earlier part of the 20th century, this was totally innocent. I think when we read it at the end of the 20th century, we probably thought that it was totally innocent, but it's amazing how fast things can change. And I don't think that that this particular passage is one that only adults would find problematic now. I think that this is one that a lot of kids in 2019 would flag as either being like making them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or like, I don't know, awkward laughter or again, like being upset by it because it's reminiscent of something that they've had to deal with themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely think that this book has a lot of examples of how 
culture and society has evolved over the past, gosh, almost 100 years now. And another example of that is with the use of the word queer. Mm. Like what that, so this one of the chapters is a queer, was a queer noise in the night. And queer was used so differently then than it is today. And so I just thought that was, because I saw that chapter and I was like, what? And then I was like, oh, it was, that was, it was used in such a different way. And I think, unfortunately, that's probably a word, maybe not so much now, but maybe like 10, 15 years ago that kids at that time would know enough about to sort Mm -hmm. of make an icky joke about. I like to think that every year that goes by, more kids are coming around to the fact that like, it's important to be open and understanding of all people, regardless of their sexuality and what their family looks like. Like, I do think that in 2019, more kids are being raised to realize that love is love and that it's not right to make jokes like that. But I can see kids that I grew up with, unfortunately, thinking that it was appropriate to make a gay joke in that moment if they read the word queer in a book. And so it is interesting to see how these kinds of like offhand words that are used in books evolve over time and do impact kids in the way that they consume content like this. Yeah. And I mean, it's just so fascinating to think about, and I'd have to look into the history of the word. So this is all just speculation, but I think originally queer was simply a synonym for strange. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, because society was not very accepting of homosexuality, bisexuality, anything but heterosexuality, it became a slur to use for people who weren't quote unquote normal, which is not something I think, but something that society had imposed on people and their sexuality. And then within the past 10 years, or maybe a little bit more, I think the LGBT community has really like taken ownership of that word and really embraced it. So I think it's been turned into a positive thing, um, but it's just, it, it was something that I thought about a lot, even though that specific word back in the 1920s wouldn't have caused me to think twice because it was, I think, used just for another way to say strange it's or weird. Int- yeah, it's interesting to me that there hasn't been a reissue of the book. Again, like there's a new cover that Instagram followers of mine have mixed feelings about. There's new covers on the on the on the books that Abby and I read for this recording. So it seems strange to me that they couldn't have sort of done like a quick find and replace on a word like queer um, in order to make yeah. it a little bit more up to today's vocabulary standards. Yeah, like they could have just made it strange or just taken it out completely and made the chapter a noise in the night, especially because the noise in the night was the most anticlimactic thing, like chapter ever. Yeah, it really didn't end up being that big of a deal. So the grandfather, after watching Henry and his friends run a race, weirdly, does end up reconnecting with the children because Violet gets sick very suddenly, by the way. Like, Mm -hmm. that happened very quickly. Violet is taken to Dr. Moore's house so that he can take care of her, and he invites the grandfather to come and sort of, like, get to know the kids in an innocent way without letting them know that he's actually their grandfather to see how everybody gets along. They're obsessed with him right away. They think he's so nice and so cool. He's younger than they expected that he would be. And they all get along perfectly. And in the end, he reveals that he's their grandfather. They agree to go live with him. And his solution to their sadness about leaving the boxcar behind, because that's become their home, is to have it transported to his backyard so that it can be used as a playhouse. And of course, the grandfather has a lot of money. And so they're now going to be taken care of really well 
they're going to live in this beautiful home where he's already furnished these like four individual bedrooms for them. But then whenever they want to, they can go play in the boxcar and be reminded of this little adventure that they had. So I think the idea is that they get the best of all worlds. They won't have to fight for survival anymore, but they still have this little piece of their memory to hold on to. And it is a nice ending in that way. Um, and that's how it wraps up. It's a really like nice, neat ending. Everybody wins. There's one brief hiccup where they discover that the dog that they found, Watch, actually belongs to somebody mm-hmm. else. And the grandfather very handily like pays off that person and is like, I'll just buy you a new dog. Give us our dog back. And it's like, uh, no, that dog actually was the other person's first. So that's kind of the wrong thing to do, but whatever. And all is well. Watch is restored to the family and they all live happily ever after. I felt like that was such an unnecessary part. It was, he was a stray dog. Like we could have just left it at at that. But no, it was nice. I did like that touch of him bringing the boxcar into their backyard, but I did not remember that part at all. And in my head, all of the boxcar children books existed with them having to fight for survival. So now I'm like, maybe I will get the next one to be like, how does this work? Are they now the rich kids solving mysteries? Like what happens? Like I need, I might, might be um, the year that I read 150 boxcar books. (laughs) Well, there's this hilarious article that I found in Vox, and it's called The Boxcar Children Are Getting a Movie, and Here's How They Became Immortal Crime Fighters. And so it's kind of like this history of the boxcar children and how the books evolved over time. So as Abby alluded to, after this first book, it's all mysteries from there. Like every book is a different mystery, most often involving a theft that affects somebody that they love, like a neighbor or a friend. And the boxcar children obviously always solve the mystery with very little help from adults. And they restore what's ever been stolen to their friend. And that's kind of their mission. And more often than not, the mysteries are solved when they're like traveling somewhere or like on summer vacation. They never seem to go to school. They're always just solving (laughs) mysteries and not in the grandfather's house. I agree with you. I don't really remember from the other books, them being in the grandfather's house. So I don't know if they just like were always hanging out in the boxcar. But anyway, this article was really funny in that it kind of like pokes fun at their evolution from these like scrappy kids who are fighting for survival to investigators. So here's one quote that I loved. The author says, but Warner tries to preserve the appeal of the original book. You love the boxcar children because it's fun to read about the kids creating coziness and order amid wilderness and chaos. So in each of the sequels, Warner wrote, the children find themselves setting up camp in a forest or a cave or an abandoned house. And inevitably, Jessie will wipe her misty eyes and declare, this is just like the dear old boxcar days. <laughs> of course, it isn't just like the dear old boxcar days. In the dear old boxcar days, the children were feral, living off garbage and their wits. In the subsequent books, they're rich kids, briefly roughing it on a break from their busy schedules of endless vacations and crime solving. And it's like almost like they're going glamping. Yeah. And it makes me think a lot of Annie, little orphan Annie goes from these horrible circumstances to not just getting a family, but getting a family with the richest guy in town. And that was kind of the same time period. So it was the, all these stories about these orphans, these really down and out orphans who just get absorbed by these rich families. And I just wonder what effect that had on any actual orphans of that time who either never got adopted or who got adopted into a plain old middle-income family. What also kind of glamorizes the idea of being an orphan, I think, like to kids that aren't orphans, it creates this narrative where like, how cool is it when you get to be all on your own because your parents are gone and like anything could happen to you. You could get rich. Well, yeah, I mean, there are so many things that, like negative things that could have happened to them that they just 
skirted by. It worked out very well for them. And I mean, in reality, they were, I mean, how long were they outside for? Like five days, maybe? Until uh, Violet got sick? Something like that, yeah. Well, and the Vox article describes these four different, like, stages of the boxcar children. So the first refers, I think, to that cast aside first version of the book, which they describe as it begins as a distressing story of survival. The boxcar is a symbol of stability and comfort in a cruel and uncertain world. So that's kind of like the darker iteration of the boxcar children. Phase two, then it's adapted into a cheerful domestic tale of backstoryless orphans keeping an immaculate and cozy home for themselves in the middle of the wilderness, which I think fairly describes what we just read. Yes. Stage three, that more lighthearted book is expanded into a series of stories about rich children solving mysteries while occasionally creating immaculate and cozy homes for themselves in the middle of the wilderness and all the while continuing to age and progress through time like normal humans. I think that's because like for a long time in the books, the kids like were aging as we would in real life. And then the fourth stage is the franchise ultimately becomes an ongoing series of stories about rich children solving mysteries in various luxury accommodations forever the same age while time passes around them. So then I guess at some point they stop aging because the books are still being published in 2018. So they've sort of been frozen in time. Right. They'd be, yeah, they'd be very old by now. So there you go. You're forced. Well, and is it, are, are they being published? Yeah. There's three coming out in 2018. But not by her, right? Like she's, is Gertrude she Chandler Warner wrote, still alive? No, she only wrote like the first 17 or 18 books, I think. And then ever since okay. then, it's been ghostwriters. So they're just like keeping it going. Keep it rolling. I'm just looking through my new version of this and the cover, which, I mean, it's fine. I just had such a nostalgic image of the old cover in my mind that I was kind of disappointed that this was what I ended up with. But I really don't like the illustrations throughout the rest of the... I mean, they're fine. I just... I just didn't really like them. Listeners, if you hear pages turning, it's because I'm looking at mine too. I, they're very boring. Maybe I'll try to post a few in the show notes. I'll also post a picture of the new covers so that you can see how you feel about it if you didn't see it on my Instagram. Yeah, they're very boring. They're very dark. These are the same ones that I think were in the version I read when we were kids, though. So while they're updating the covers, they must be keeping the art the same inside. Um, let me just talk about, for a few seconds, one of the kind of funny and weird moments in this book where Benny decides to cut a J into the dog's hair. Yeah, that was hilarious. I, I mean, I would have laughed a lot if I ever saw a dog where a child did that. But I was so nervous for the the entire two sentences that this was happening. Because I was like a five-year-old taking a pair of scissors to a dog. I feel like in real life that would have ended up, ended up so badly. Yeah, the dog could have gotten seriously injured. So Watch is yeah. really lucky. Well, and really a dog laying there for the entire time that he's cutting him. Watch has a really lovely personality. He does. Apparently. Although I thought it was funny when they heard the noise or Henry was saying something about, we have Watch now. He'll protect us so we don't have to worry. And I was like, well, first of all, he is injured and walking around on three feet right now because he had a thorn in his foot, which is when they first met him. Jesse pulled out this really long thorn. So, I mean, yes, that's eventually going to heal. But from the illustrations, he looks like this kind of medium-sized terrier. I'm like, he's not going to... Like, there are four of you. He's not going to be able to protect all of you at once if something really evil comes around. So I just thought that was such, like, naivete of children, like this little dog. It wasn't, like, a big Rottweiler or something. Yeah, we're not talking about a Rottweiler here. He's, like, a cute little terrier. Yeah. So all in all, has reading this book for SSR made you love and appreciate 
the boxcar children all the more or has it sort of, I don't want to say has it made you hate it, but has it changed for the negative, the way that you remember these books as part of your childhood? Have I ruined your childhood in any sort of way? No, you have not ruined my childhood. Right. Because after I read this yesterday, I was like, I hated that so much. But then I thought about it some more and I still think that as a child, I understand the reasons why I liked it. And I still think there were some really neat parts. I think this was just, it's hard to say like how I, because I think some of the other books on this podcast were still like books that people read in their childhood, but were for older kids. So are still something that like took a little longer to read, had more developed, a more developed plot. But this was very clearly for very young children. And so I don't feel right judging it that harshly as a 29 year old. Like I'm not meant to like these early stage chapter books. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I also think in a way that feels almost backwards to me, the fact that the text is so simple and so basic, it makes it that much easier to like project your own interpretation and your own feelings onto it because it's so bare bones and there's no sense from the author about how we're supposed to feel about any of it. So I think it becomes really simple to sort of like put your worldview on it. And again, our worldview in 2019 is so different than our worldview would have been at any point in history. And so it's that much easier to make a judgment about the books and where they're coming from. So I think that was an interesting element of it too. You don't necessarily expect that when a book is so simply written, but I actually think I like had more opinions about it because the text left like so much room for interpretation. And I think that skill of as a reader asking for info to fill in the blanks or making up our own info to fill in the blanks is something that's learned over time because I read um, or I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about JK Rowling, Rowling, however it's pronounced, and how in the Harry Potter books and how a lot of times she doesn't directly explain things because she trusts her readers to be able to put two and two together. And I think, you know, by the time you're reading these Harry Potter books, which I think the later ones, like books five, six, seven, get a little bit more complicated, but you've started to learn this skill of putting together pieces of the plot and asking more and figuring things out on your own. I don't think that's something you really have when you're in second grade. You're purely in it for the story and you believe you're still naive and you're believing what the author tells you and you're just along for the ride and it's fine. I think it was so long ago. It was so long ago. And as fun as it is to dissect books like this for the podcast, reading it the way that we're reading it is not how it was intended to be read. So it doesn't make this conversation any less valid. It doesn't make it any less interesting again, because these books are still on the bookshelves. I think it's still an important conversation to be had, but obviously listeners, we're not saying that a second grader is reading this book the same way that we are. We're just acknowledging that there's some kind of crazy stuff in it if you're reading it as a grown-up, and that might be worth knowing if there are kids in your lives that are reading it. I mean, I don't know if I'm having children, but if I do or if I ever read to like any nieces or nephews or any children in my life, I wouldn't ever say they can't read these books. I think that there's probably some really interesting adventures and, and some really good um, lessons on resourcefulness. I think I would just want it to be some sort of guided reading of the like an adult reading along with them and asking them just questions and what they think about certain things. And I think it's a good book to get kids started thinking in in a new type of way about what they're reading and how they view the world. So context is always helpful. Yes. 
So I think that was, I don't want to say a surprisingly great conversation about the boxcar children because I knew we would have a good talk, but I think this was a much like more detailed discussion than I maybe expected that we would have of a book that's really so easy to read. It's like, uh, again, sorry for the page turning here, listeners, but it's like 154 pages and that's including lots of art and the text is really big. There's a lot of blank space in this book. So that was a really good conversation. Thank you so much for reading The Boxcar Children with me and for chatting about it. Now that we have aired all of our opinions about The Boxcar Children, what are you reading now or have you read anything recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Sure. So I just finished last night a 650-page book. It's by, well, it's it's by Robert Galbraith, which is technically J.K. Rowling. Um, It's her like um, alias series. What is it called when a... I think a pen name maybe. A a pen name. It's her pen name that she started after Harry Potter. And it's a series. It's the fourth in a series. It's called the Cormoran Strike series. And it's about, um, it's like these murder mysteries in London. The first one is called Cuckoo's Calling. The one I read, I finished last night is called Lethal White. And I am just obsessed with her writing in these books. I'm obsessed with the characters. I'm sad that it's over. It's one of those books that you're like, I, I really want to read it, but I'm, I don't want it to be over because I just feel so comfortable and at home with these characters, but I recommend it. I already know that she's coming out with a fifth. I think she's going to keep coming out with more because she hasn't put a limit on the number she's writing like she did with Harry Potter at, at seven. What I'm moving on to next is the seventh book in the Tana French series. She does a series, a Dublin murder squad series. Can you, I have a trend here of uh, murder mystery series, but, um, yeah, so I think it'll be really good because the first six are really good. So my husband loves the ton of French series and I read Cuckoo's Calling a few years ago, I think soon after it came out. And I don't know that I've kept up with the series since then, but so many people love it that I'm kind of thinking that I need to go back and you're inspiring me to seriously consider that. So maybe I will. I would dive back in because Cuckoo's Calling, I really liked, but I think it was, I think it's kind of similar to, I mean, any series, but especially Harry Potter in the sense that, of course, everyone loves the first book because you're introduced to all the characters, but it's, the characters aren't as developed yet. The stories aren't as developed. There's not a lot of, J.K. Rowling does such a good job at pulling from past books and that's what they start to do in these books. So it just starts to get better and better. And there's a BBC short TV series for each book. There's like a couple episodes. So then you have not only the books to read, but the shows to watch. More content. It's all about the yes. It's all about the content. Well, I'll definitely reconsider jumping back into the series. I will also include links to both of the books that you mentioned as recommendations and the Boxcar Children as part of the show notes for this episode. I'm also going to include a reminder to all of our readers to be on the lookout for Abby's forthcoming podcast. I'm super excited to tune in. And Abby, I'm really happy that you were a guest on SSR. It was so fun chatting with you about this book. Yes, thank you. I'm sad it's over. I was looking forward to this all month. I know. It was really fun. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
if you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.